Has it occurred to you that the systems we live by are not designed to get results? We pay for procedures instead of outcomes, focusing on emergencies rather than preventing disease and living a healthy lifestyle. For over 25 years, I've taken care of Olympians, Paralympians, A-list actors, and Fortune 1000 companies. If I did not get results, they did not get results. I realized that while powerful people who control the system want to keep the status quo, if I were to educate the masses, you would demand change. So I'm taking the gloves off and going after the systems as they are. Join me on my mission to create a new tomorrow as I chat with industry experts, elite athletes, thought leaders, and government officials about how we activate our vision for a better world. We may agree and we may disagree, but I'm not backing down. I'm Ari Gronich, and this is Create a New Tomorrow Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I'm your host, Ari Gronich, and today I have with me a Muhammad Hamoud. He is a loving husband and father to three children. He's a heart-centered leader who's passionate about empowering leaders to unleash their potential by sharpening their emotional intelligence, fostering inclusion, and leading from the heart. Thank you for coming on the show, Mohammed. And why don't you tell us, the audience, a little bit about yourself and how you became this heart-centered leader? Thank you for having me on the show today, Ari. It's really a pleasure to be here. So how did I become a heart-centered leader? I don't necessarily believe that was intentional. Ever since I was young, maybe eight years old, I started becoming aware that what I wanted to do in life was to be in service of others. And that's not the language I used when I was eight. It was more of how can I make a difference? How can I do something that makes me happy, makes others happy? And from a young age, I, I craved belonging. I craved wanting to be amongst others and feel like I was one of them because I was an immigrant. I came from overseas, lived in Canada. I had to change my name I, several times, had to uh, disinvest myself of my Islamic identity. I became Western. And, you know, so becoming a person who I wasn't to please people who weren't like me and starting to look like people who weren't like me. So I started to fit in because, you know, you look at me, I don't look Middle Eastern, I don't look Muslim. And when I started using the name Mike and then Mikel and then Miguel, it was years. It was, I was, you know, into my adulthood. I was 25 before I came out of the closet and can use my Islamic name and I could, you know, reclaim my Islamic identity as, as Muhammad. Through that, throughout that journey, from knowing that I wanted to make a difference, getting older and recognizing that we need a space where we can feel that we are part of the community where we live, that we belong, that we're accepted. But what I started learning is if you don't accept yourself first, you can't expect other people to accept you. And so since I reclaimed, so to speak, my identity and started using my, my given name again, it's not like it shuts off and, you know, life becomes easy. It actually becomes more of a struggle because that was about the same time as uh, the Gulf War and then 9-11. And then, you know, right now uh, with everything around, you know, Muslims and what you have in the world around misunderstanding of what Islam is. But, you know, not, not to stay there because, you know, I don't represent all Muslims, certainly not, but that was part of my identity. And how do I put myself out there with a name like Muhammad, whether I'm on LinkedIn, whether I'm applying for a job, people just see the name and they cower back and they're like, oh, well, yeah, thank you, but no thanks. So it was a matter of now that I was 
out there using my full name, how do I engage with others? How do I continue to give back? How do I continue to feel accepted? How do I take off the various masks that I've been hiding behind for all, all my life and now become a young, you know, at the time I was 25, becoming you know, a young adult who wanted to make a difference, get a job, have a family. Since then, 27 years later, you know, it's still a struggle because it hasn't become any easier for people to accept you. But again, to the point that I made earlier, I've learned to accept myself. I've learned that with every struggle and every opportunity, have a conversation, get to know the other person, let them know you authentically, create that bond where they know who you are, what difference you can make to their life. And then it becomes a connection between you and that individual. And I brought that philosophy to the work that I do, whether it's volunteer work, work in the community, whether it's you know work that I try to do and I try to get into politics or work that I do in my leadership development, diversity, equity, inclusion. The lens that I lead with is we are here to serve people. And you can't serve people until you first command ownership of their hearts. What do I mean by that? When you have connected heart to heart with another human being, when they know that you are there to serve them, they will be open to listening to your message. And that's where you create love. That's where you create a friendship. That's where you create a fraternity, uh, a, a sisterhood, brotherhood between the other person. And then they get to know you. And that's what human life is all about. It's about that authentic connection. Nice. So I've told this story a few times, but when I lived in Los Angeles, my roommate was Palestinian Muslim. I am a Jewish, Buddhist, uh, Catholic, uh, you know, like religion studier. Uh, I've studied the Quran. I've studied Buddhism. I've studied Taoism. I've studied a lot of religions, Native American. But she and I, you know, as you can imagine, didn't necessarily agree on on a whole lot of stuff, but we agreed that we were brother and sister and brother and sister sometimes grow up in completely different households, even if they're in the same house. So even my brother and I, very different people, we, we kind of made that same conclusion that, you know, we grew up in different worlds because of our perception and our reality was, was different, even though it was the same household. And so with, with my roommate, her cousin happened to be an attorney in Palestine that worked with the Hamas uh, PLO, the Palestinian government and Israel on their negotiations and on their peace talks and all these things. And what I didn't realize at first is that when she and I would have these conversations, these amazing conversations, we'd always start out with, where are we the same? That was the first thing that we'd ask. We said, okay, we already know we have differences. Mm -hmm. Where is our beliefs the same? Where is it that we have the same goals, the same um, thoughts? And then, okay, so now that we know we have all of this that's the same, maybe our way of going about it is different. Maybe our way of, of thinking about it is different, but we can create some solutions. What I didn't know is that she would call her cousin in Palestine after we were Donna having a conversation and she would basically tell the stories of, of what we were talking about and the solutions. And then he would go <laughs> and, and do some peace talks and do some, you know, negotiations as an attorney <laughs> with, with that kind of information. And it, it was fascinating to me because most people would say to me, how are you living with this 
Palestinian Muslim woman because they don't realize that people are just people and religion doesn't necessarily make you a terrorist, right? I think the percentages that I saw, something like 10 or something percent, but percentages are really low in any extreme group, but they're loud. The extremists are loud. So those are the ones that get the message across and then people are judging an entire culture based on, or religion based on a small percentage of the population. And that happens everywhere across the board, whether you're, let's call let, let's just be a little bit politically incorrect, whether you're a Southern redneck, whether you're a Palestinian Muslim or Muslim in general, whether you're a Jew, whether you're Catholic, Christian, Protestant, you know, like, I mean, there isn't a culture on the planet that hasn't at one point been oppressed and repressed and, and ripped apart, so to speak. And so if we can get behind the fact that what is it that we want and what is, what, where are we the same, all of a sudden the world opens up possibilities, in my opinion. So let's talk about that a little bit because, and I don't want to make this a, a, about too much about religion and, and culture that way, but it's definitely something that's present in our communities and in our countries right now, very, right. very hardcore. So let's just talk a little bit about how, how would you say you use emotional intelligence to bridge the gaps between diversity and culture? So that's what I spoke at. Uh, so I was, uh, two years ago, I was invited to speak at the uh, Wake and Aware TEDx in um, Traverse City, Michigan. My message was around reclaiming my identity, but it was more of extending that bridge because we as human beings can become bridges. And my message was, you know, the people that have hijacked my name for their political, uh, you know, their political views that don't resonate with the rest of us. What they've done is they've hijacked my name, my religion, my beliefs, and they've used me as collateral. So the idea is that we don't have to, your point, we don't have to be represented by that loud minority, however small they are. And I think the percentage is probably less than 1% actually. But to your point, because they are so loud and we tend to see more of the negative in society than we tend to look for the good. As human beings, we tend, you know, even on ourselves, we tend to first focus on what brings us pain and angst before we look at what is bringing us happiness and fulfillment. So when we look in, 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 in the community, we will look in a society, we look at what's different. And when we see what's different, we don't necessarily see what's good about it. We don't see that we can be better and happier because of our differences and not in spite of them. But nobody told us we had to agree. So you and your Palestinian Muslim friend started from a place of commonality and, and most of what, what the reason that we're here, I believe, is not to find that we all like chocolate ice cream, but to recognize that you can like chocolate ice cream and I like mint. I don't, it's the other way around. But the idea is that it'd be boring if we all agreed and if we all believed in the same thing. And the beauty of it is how we can recognize that diversity, diversity is a fact, but it's inclusion is a choice. Diversity is all around us in nature and hu in humanity and the way that we speak and the way that we look in the way that we love. And so we can't change that diversity. We have to recognize it and celebrate it as opposed to penalize it. And we can intently, so with intention, choose to be inclusive. But even inclusion is not enough. What we have to do 
is to allow you and I to sit at the same table. And when you break your bread, you hand it to me. You allow me to sit at the table with you and to be part of your communion. And it's a matter of allowing enough people at, at the table. So, you know, it's making sure that there are empty chairs so that people can actually come and sit beside us. And, you know, back, you know, in Palestine and in Israel, people don't actually sit on a chair. Traditionally, we sat around in a circle and that circle is the circle of safety. And what we have to do to recognize for us to grow and to recognize the differences make us stronger is to allow the circle of safety to widen and for those that are on the outside to come in of their own volition and to be part of the conversation, to have their voices heard, to feel that they are seen, to feel that they are valued. And when we do that, when we, al when we allow ourselves to stand back and allow others you know, or, or, you know, permit space for others to come in, we create that feeling of belonging. So if diversity is being invited to the room and inclusion is having the door open for me, belonging is me sitting side by side and breaking bed with you and feeling that we are together in communion. And that's how we can build human bridges. So when I said that right now, instead of building walls, as we know, this is the rhetoric that we're using to divide us and the vitriol that we're using to shame and, and to talk about the other in a not very positive way, we need to say we'll build bridges instead of walls. So that's the message that we need to hear today. It's not that we're going to agree. Humankind, you know, we have not agreed on anything that has changed the world for the better. We have come to sit together at a table to recognize that you have the right to your belief and I have the right to my belief. But in that right, in that right that I own and that you own, we have the common understanding and respect to accept each other and honor each other. And that, I think, if we come to a starting point to say from those commonalities, from those places of honor, we can start to become better human beings. We can create the new tomorrow. We can be part of the tomorrow that we want to start living today. Absolutely. You know, you, you said something about circles and, and um, I, I, I'm a circle theorist. And, and what that means is there's not a single thing in nature that doesn't have a circle shape. In martial arts, everything is about circle, you know, whether it's creating an energy bubble or the movement being a circular movement for martial arts. Um, tribal living in a modern world is a book that I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to, to write. And I'm going to do a series of these books. The first one is a corporate uh, as a corporate one. It's tribal living in a modern world, the corporate culture revolution. And my theory is, that if we take the sharp edges out of anything and we turn them into circles. So let's, let's say in a corporation, you usually have cubicles and that people are in and box offices, right? And it's a boxed building. Yeah. And if you took that and you turn it into a circle structure, then all of a sudden, and you could do concentric circles. So, you know, small and then bigger and bigger and bigger. We end up creating project-driven and productive teams, uh, purpose-driven teams, things like that, because 
all the people necessary for that project are in that circle and they all have equal positioning, right? So there's, there's no place where the, that position, the engineer isn't less than the, the uh, accountant or more than, than the, uh, the manager, than the, you know, cause they all have different unique talents. So why put one above or below another in a box type structure or a pyramid type structure? Why not create it in a, in a circle, circular? But I, I think that that goes back to what you were saying, you know, in Israel and Palestine and tribal living in general, we, we, we would eat around a fire in a circle, talk around a fire in a circle. We would commune, we would storytell, we would, you know, do that. In, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, we would eat dinner with our family in a circle. You know? mm-hmm. And the circle has become sharp-edged versus versus that nice soft circle with no sharp edges, right? We, ha- we don't do dinner with the family anymore. We, we tend to be individualized even in our families, right? And that to me is part of what has broken up the family, which has broken up the community, which has broken up the society. And, and you know, the purpose I guess of it has been well, everybody's too busy to, to do anything together anymore because you're working 40 to 80 hours a week, right? But just if you could imagine a world that's circular versus sharp-edged and how much different that might feel. And isn't it amazing? The world is circular. We live in not maybe a perfect circle, but the earth is a globe. The sun is a globe. The planets are circular. You know, everything that we know, to your point, has some sort of structure where it's circular. The, 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 the dimensions of how the blood travels within the body is circular. Everything has that circular. Now, I, you know, I'll come later to, to the idea of, of, of a spiral, but a spiral is another version. You know, when you talk about concentric circles, a spiral is a circle that continues to grow, that continues to expand. And that is how I think we can take the image of a circle, not the square or rectangular head of the table leadership mentality that there is one leader at the top of the pyramid or at the head of the table, but we are sitting around equally, equitably around each other, across from each other, looking at each other. We can hold hands with each other. And most of the uh, indigenous communities believe in the circle. You mentioned the campfire. So I think we are designed or created in a circular mentality. To your point, we start dividing ourselves up into the compartments of the cubicle and and the the boxes and the big buildings. And it's all about these sharp rectangular shapes that break away from what's natural and nurturing to us. So the more we move away from the circle of safety, the less that we feel we belong or that we're included. And I think it's important to recognize that the more you are less to your nature, the less you're able to nurture. So how do you nurture a relationship with another human being if you create a dimension or a dynamic of inequality because of where you sit or where you stand? But when you invite someone to commune with you within that sphere 
of knowing and being, I think that person feels that they belong, right? As opposed to, you know, I have to take a seat at a table and the closer that I am to the head of the table, probably the more important that I am or in the pyramid, right? Servant leadership tries to turn that pyramid upside down. And, you know, you talk to a lot of the CEOs and they're like, no, you know, I got to CEO because I worked so hard. You did, but you didn't do it alone. And if you continue to think that you, you know, you're up at the top of the pyramid and you work alone and these other people who work below you, I hate that language, by the way, you know, people who, you know, report to you, if they're not part of who you are and part of your vision, if all of a sudden they move away from beneath you, your position at the top crumbles down to the bottom. So we need to be able to invert that pyramid and to put the CEO and the leader at the bottom. And not in terms of importance, but in terms of structure, in terms of foundation, in terms of vision, in terms of that leader now has the vision to be able to support an organization growing and spiraling up within growth so that the individual contributors who are now perhaps furthest away from the, from, from the leader can actually benefit from that shared vision that spirals upwards as opposed to comes down. You know, top-down leadership is so, so out but it's still the one that is predominantly, um, you know, telling us how we should be living. It's, it's very top down, do as I do, do as I say, not as I do kind of leadership. It's role playing and not role modeling. Yeah, <clears throat> I agree with, with that as well. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing about companies is to a person who's got an ego, a CEO that has an ego, he's the person who created everything. To the CEO who's non-egoic, I have this skill set of vision. You have this skill set of implementation. I work hard at creating a vision you work hard at making that vision sing, at making that vision work, at making that vision amazing, right? Whether it's one employee or 50,000 employees, you've got the vision. That's my job is to hold the vision as the CEO, not to be the ego of I am a CEO, but to be, I am the vision holder. I'm the direction, I'm the GPS. You're the car, you're the, the, the driver, you're the, <clears throat> the steering wheel, you're the brakes, you're the, the implementers. And that I think puts them in an equal footing because it's not, I worked so hard for this, it's we work hard to get where we're going. We're traveling down the road and we need the team to get there. There's no man on this planet, no woman, no man, that can ever say that they made a huge success of life by themselves. They may have created the concept, but then they had to get other people involved and other people on board to agree with that concept in order for them to make that, that leap. Right. Steve Jobs, he had somebody. Bill Gates, he had somebody. I mean, and then they had to bring in more people that had other skills, that different skills and better skills, you know, 
So yeah, that's the the thing about leadership is interesting because we've gotten to this place where it used to be captain goes down with the ship, the buck stops here, right? And now it's more like the buck stops where? <laughs> mm. I'm going down with nothing. Right. I'm going to have all the money and my helicopter is going to get off that ship before right. employees can get off that ship. And it's a very different kind of way of thinking about things, which makes people feel unsupported, unappreciated, uncared for, and unloved. So they're going to be unloyal, unproductive, un. <laughs> you know, compromise with what they're doing. And now you've got a business that's running half at its capacity or less, half its productivity or less, and the employee loyalty is gone. Government loyalty is gone. Civil liberty is gone. We're we're not like worried about civics so much anymore and civic duty and, you know, those kinds of things. So it's an interesting way of looking at it. But tell us what you think would be a, a solution to that dilemma, the dilemma of top-down leadership? To invert that pyramid and to really come from the vantage point, lead through the lens of being there to serve, lead through the lens that you as the leader, to your point, the leader got to be where they are. And, you know, it's interesting how we refer when we say the leader, and you said it, I've said it, he, because 98% of leadership positions are white, middle-aged men, gray-haired men, right? And, and so I think the reason you and I have these podcasts is we want to change that landscape. We want to make it more inclusive. We want to see different genders leading. We want to have different voices. So that is in part of the solution. Right now, when we saw what's happening with the amplification of the civil liberties movement and the Black Lives Movement and the awareness that the status quo isn't working and we can't go around putting our knees on on people's necks and killing them, right? And only reacting and making change when things like that happen, we need to be proactive. We need to make sure that CEOs aren't stepping aside because they feel that there isn't representation and there isn't diversity. We need to build organizations and design cultures so they're more inclusive so that in two years, 10 years, 20 years, we see more people that represent our populations, that represent the differences and and the commonalities that we have. So that person at the top doesn't have to know all the answers. That person who is leading doesn't have to be at the top. That person needs to lead by listening to others, learning about their needs. And when we do that, not only do we engage and we empower people within our organization, but even when you have top-down leadership, and for some reason, because you lead by fear and authority, you have people in your organization, you know, being strung along with you. Guess what? Your client will likely find a different organization because not a lot of people out there want to be sold a product. They want to be sold a vision. They want to be sold a lifestyle. I buy a particular, um, you know, electronic device not because I feel like spending $2,000 on a phone, but I do because I believe in the, uh, the operating system or more so the, the, the infrastructure of what that phone will do for me. So it's, it's the ecosystem that, it, 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 right? It's the lifestyle. And so it's a matter that if I can lead, but not by empowering, 
my client, my customer may not, I mean, look behind me and I don't see them with me anymore. So at one point we have to lead for the organization, we have to lead for the employee and we have to lead for the community. We have to have that holistic approach that we are here to serve the people that work with us, not for us. We are here to serve people as, as, as a team approach. And then we are here to serve the community. Yes, we are here for profits, but not at the expense of people. Yes, we are here to, uh, to build office towers and, and to buy and, and purchase and to have a certain lifestyle, but not at the expense of people going hungry. So we need to recapture that humanity that has helped us build our economy and recognize it to go hand in hand. The term essential worker only became important when we recognized that we couldn't live during this pandemic without their essential services. The minute that we felt things were getting better in the summertime, at least here in Canada, we took away the, the $2 an hour that we were giving essential workers on top of the regular wage because we're saying, hey, thank you for your hard work when, you, when we needed you. Guess what? Now we're having the same sort of story that we were you know, telling our marketing spiel uh, was, we need you, we're in this together because we're starting to feel the strains again. We need to behave in our optimal when things are good and when things are not so good. So leaders need to lead to be of service to others. Similar to the message that I gave you at the start when I was introducing myself, if I have a message that I'm going to share with you, until I have been able to create a relationship with you and be of service to you, you're not going to be open to listen to me. Until you and your colleague respected that you didn't have to agree, but you could live together and you could do so in harmony by, by respecting each other, you recognize it's okay to disagree. And that is the beauty of differences, is we recognize that they don't have to, you know, separate us. They can bring us together. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. We both said he, but <clears throat> a friend of mine on, on uh, Facebook yesterday posed a question. And it was an interesting question. It was, uh, it was poised to men and feeling, uh, and the question was, do you men feel like you have to play small because of the role that women are starting to take over more positions of authority and leadership and politics and yada, yada. And my response was, nobody needs to play small. Everybody can play big. There's a for everything and every person. So they'll be attracted or repelled by that person based on their own whatever biases. And I, then, I, then I asked just the funnier question, which is, did the apple need to play small to the banana or does the avocado just win it all? Because, you know, it's like, well, I can, I can only have this fruit, this apple. I can't have the apple and the banana. Or I can only have the avocado, right? And I'm going to have that for the rest of my life. Just avocados. How boring would that be? Chocolate ice cream. <laughs> it's like, why should, a, why should the apple play small to the mm. banana? Just because the banana is the number one bought fruit in the world, right? An apple didn't play small to it. People still eat the apple. Who want the apple? People eat the orange. People eat the, you know, the avocado. So, you know, that, that philosophy that people have 
and it goes to race also race religion well you know if uh if too many black people become in politics right then we just we just are gonna you know what we're just gonna we're gonna have to be small because we can't fit everybody you know <laughs> like okay where is it that the best person for the job no matter what race religion color sex creed the best person for the job gets the job the best per nobody needs to play small everybody can play really big and full out right right so Ari, I, I will say, because I had somebody challenge me on this when I was saying, you know, we, and you're right, we do want the best person for the job. And a black woman said to me, but we don't have the same opportunities to get to be good at the jobs that we do. We don't get the same opportunities to have the same education that white people do, privileged people, and privilege has many layers. So you and I, even though we're, we're not white, we look white and therefore we're closer to the dominant culture in terms of our skin color, right? And so systemic racism holds people back from being able to access the level of education and, and, and socioeconomic success that the dominant culture has offered or allowed, not offered, allowed, permitted for the dominant culture to have. So when we look at the best person for the job, the reason we sometimes we gravitate towards giving it to a white Anglo-Saxon middle-aged white man to be in a leadership role, it's because we have not empowered women enough to be in leadership positions. It's because you know, if we, we haven't empowered enough black people to get the same sort of education in the same Ivy League schools as white people. So we have systemic racism and until that changes, the best person for the job will likely still look like you and me, but probably be that white middle-aged, right? So it's a matter of recognizing that our current system is broken and needs change. We need to change it so that in a few generations or hopefully in a few years, representation is truly based on opportunity and giving equal opportunity and equitable opportunity to everybody in the community. Right. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna preface what I'm saying with I agree that there is systemic racism. The thing that I'm that I'm gonna disagree with is that, okay. is that there's a lack of opportunity. Mm. There's enough people that I've met in my life, been friends with, enjoyed their company that are black, female, that are absolutely brilliant and millionaires and living amazing lives. And, you know, one of the things like that, that, and this is a point of consideration, but Morgan Freeman asked these, these questions, right? Black man has, has gotten a lot of success. And what he says is, we need to stop talking about race. Don't call me a black man. I'm not going to call you a white man. Don't, call, you know, I'm Morgan. That's my name. Mm. That's who I am. And I think that part of the system is that we ask race, color, religion, gender on documents that are, it's unimportant to have that information. It's not important to have it unless you want to segment a society. 
and discern, okay, well, this person is of that, so they get this benefit, and that person is of that, so they get that, right? If we stop naming people and labeling people red, blue, left, right, you know, redneck, snowflake, I mean, if we stop the labels, to me, we begin the process of creating systemic change. As soon as we start privileging people who have been unprivileged, now we're creating an imbalance. Yeah. And that imbalance is what scares the living bejesus out of, out of white people. Right. right. So when we're reactionary, like we were with the George Floyd murder, and all of a sudden CEOs were stepping down to make room for colored or black CEOs, you know, uh, you know their counterparts, from the black community to step in. That's where I think we're being reactionary. And to your point, we're privileging those who have been unprivileged. We allow me here to say that the systemic racism that we have isn't one generation, two generations, it's hundreds of years old. So for, you mentioned bias. Until we have a new baseline where you could see a name on a resume like Muhammad and not have the bias that you will, and you know, and I've done research and I've done, uh, uh, I've been part of these um, attempts where I apply as Mike and I'll get the recognition more quickly than I will by Muhammad. So you won't believe the amount of times that doors have been closed, virtual and, and physical, because people see my name. When we first came, and we're talking 70s, we were told we had to change our names because we couldn't, I couldn't go to an all-Catholic school with the name Muhammad or had to be baptized, right? So systemic racism exists. And until we have a new baseline where we're not building on the previous uh, baseline, where we're, you know, for us to be able to say, we'll recognize that you have equal opportunity we have to get to that baseline where equal opportunity exists. And I think when we look at the number of, let's use black people as an example, the number of black people who are well off and enjoying a better lifestyle than their uh, white counterparts, it's a very small percentage compared to how many people we, when we look at our cities, there are certain areas in the cities where they are just, our postal codes are based on how much money we have, what color we are, what religion we are. We're segregated. And we know that when we look at cities like Chicago and New York, there's the Italian uh, village, there's the, the Jewish community, there's the, the Middle Eastern community, like th there's pockets. And those pockets that we celebrate, I go to Little Italy to have a, a good authentic Italian pizza. But the idea is that people came to those areas and stayed there because they felt comfortable. And it was, it was segregation that prevented them from going to other places. And that segregation, it, it, it's a form of discrimination that we continue to propagate because we say this is the status quo. So I think we have to recognize that representation has to change. This new baseline has to be recorrected, calibrated before we can get to the point where we say, you know what, the best person gets the job. Because right now, the best person that has the opportunity to get there is not you and I. It's the people that have always been fed with a silver spoon and things were easier for them because of hundreds of years of colonization and slavery. Right. So it's Again, I, I, I get some of that. And, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. Oh, so 
did we get segregated like the Jewish communities of New York and, and so forth or whatever? Did we get segregated or did we segregate ourselves because that's where we felt more comfortable and, and so forth? So, you know, we came here for the diversity of the culture in America, but we then moved into communities with just our people, regardless of who's our people, whether it's, you know, Latin or Latin communities, Italian communities, you know, Armenian communities, doesn't really matter. And then the next question that I have is how many Mohammeds are loud about the love, are loud about the heart-centered, are loud about what it is that you're loud about, right? Versus however many Mohammeds that are loud about terrorism. Right. Thing with any... Any with any right. I'm just I'm putting this out there, not not as a, a what I'm saying is the the evil is always louder. Than, right. And right. in my opinion, the way to change that is people like you get really loud. People who have good hearts get louder than the terrorists, get louder than the people who are causing problems. The the in the black community, get loud about the changes that you're making and the good that you're doing in your community versus the crime that's happening there, right? There, right. Are, there are ways to bring people in and there are ways to scare the little bit living bejesus out. Yeah. And I think that in general, these small pockets of, of loudness are coming from the agitators more than the unifiers. Mm. And so the challenge that I would have is for the unifiers to get much louder than anybody else. The message that they would hear when they heard the name Muhammad is they would hear love, inclusion, heart-centered, empowering versus death to whatever, you know, like, right. and, and this may be insulting. I, I, I don't know. Cause I'm not trying to be insulting. No, no. I'm it, in a way that I feel like I'm not victim shaming. And a lot of people might think that, but what I'm saying is I'm trying to empower somebody to not be the victim. Right. Right. So to your first point about did we choose to were we segregated or did we choose to be segregation? It's never black and white. It's never one or the other. I think it's a combination of both. We gravitate towards areas where we feel we belong and this is our community. We go to same churches. Even within, let's say, Jewish community, you have the the different kinds of, of, of Jewish communities and you have three different synagogues based on how conservative, liberal, uh, orthodox they are, same within the Muslim community. So we, we segregate ourselves, we choose that inclusion, which becomes exclusive at one point. But also I think there's an element of we are put into different, and it depends on the country you're in. We, I don't have to tell you in certain, I mean, God forbid that should, anything should happen like this again, the segregation that happened in, in Nazi Germany, for example, with, with the Jewish communities, right? That's where we don't want to go, where segregation now uh, help, you know, allows us to look at the other as the enemy. And that leads into my second to, response to your second question, which is when we are louder about the things that make us different and make us different in fear, because in it, 
ignorance can go two ways. It can go to fear and hatred, or it can go to acknowledgement and love. Because we all start from a place of ignorance. We don't know. And to your point, I don't know if I'm being insulting. You're not. You're, you know, we, if you didn't say it, it'd be like the elephant in the room, right? And it's the idea that we have to acknowledge. We start by asking these questions and baselining you know, what we know and what we want to know. And when we allow the louder voices, so it's not that there are more Mohammeds who are terrorists. What it is, is the media will only tell you about the Muhammads who are terrorists. They will not tell you about the Muhammads that are unifiers. The, when there is a white, well, we know right now, and this isn't white bashing, by the way, but I, I think we have to call it out there. We know that homegrown terrorism is 97% of the amount of terrorism that there is in, in North America, or at least in the United States, compared to the amount of non right, a terrorism that's not on our soil. And it, most of that is not by the immigrant communities. So if our media chooses to always talk about the hoodie who's a black man, you don't hear a white Christian boy walked into a store and blew off somebody's head with a pistol. But you will hear black male, right? Now we're starting to hear Caucasian, right? So we have to be equal representation and when we're giving a message, when we're praising and when we're being critical, we have to, to your point earlier, to where I think we can take what Morgan Freeman is saying in, in, in that look at me as I am. I want to be seen as Muhammad and I want to be seen as Muslim. It's part of my identity. A black person who has fought endlessly, generations to celebrate being black for me not to see their color, for me to be colorblind as opposed to be color bold, would be to take away the affirmation that they've worked centuries and centuries on to be recognized as a person of color or black person. And I was, you know, uh, one time I referred to a black woman as a person of color. She said, I'm black, Muhammad, not a person of color. I'm black. I fought for the right to be black and to be recognized and seen as black. So we have to hear and see and value people for who they are. And when we do that, to, to what you said earlier, I think when we have that new baseline where I see you for who you are, you, not representative of all other Jews, you as Ari, who is a, a Buddhist, Jewish, uh, got some Catholic in there, so you, you, I see you for you. And then I recognize who you may speak on behalf of by saying to me, as a Jew, I speak to this. As, a North Ameri as a, an American person, I speak to this. I don't speak on behalf of all Muslims. I'm shunned in, in, from in some parts of my community because I don't look like this isn't a religious beard. This is just three days growth because I've been lazy. So, you know, we have to recognize that one person doesn't represent their entire community or, you know, if you want to use the word race, because I believe we belong to one human race. So until we have that new baseline, it's going to be hard to say that we can be equitable and, and treat everybody equal, with equal opportunities. Until we have that new baseline, it's going to be hard to say that um, we can give the best, you know, the job to the best person because that person who's the best for the job didn't have the same opportunities, their parents didn't. So we have to create that new baseline. We have to, to the image of the circle that we talked about earlier, allow for us to sit back and for others to come into that circle and to recognize the engineer and the and the, the CEO and the individual computer contributors all have something of value to bring. And that comes with our self-awareness. It comes with our level of deep conviction that we are emotionally intelligent beings. You know, it's not just 
in intelligent quotas, but it's emotional quota. And it's our intention to create that opportunity to speak and get to know someone and to become a human bridges and not human walls. It's deep. Yeah, you know, it's really difficult to have a conversation like this in general in public these days. Mm -hmm. I can disagree with you and I can agree with you and I can still honor, respect, love, feel affinity towards, you know, you. And that kind of level of commitment that I have to love thy neighbor, so to speak, is it's not based on a religion. It's based on a belief that there's nothing to hate in a human being other than the trauma that they've gone through to make them do the things that they do. Everybody has traumas and everybody has brilliances. And there's so many people these days that are in this cancel culture that are, well, you don't believe in what I believe in. So I'm just going to delete you as my friend. I'm just going to eliminate you from, from my sphere so that I don't have to hear your opinion that I disagree with. And I think it's so damaging to a culture in general that especially one that the United States, like Canada and the United States are two places where we welcome immigration. We welcome diversity. Diversity is what created our country. Black men and women built most of this country. Chinese built most of our railway system people other than white people, right? Did tremendous work in the infrastructure mm -hmm. of building this country and not always in ways that were kind. Sometimes they were ways that had whips at their backs. And I think that the beginning is acknowledging what the struggle has been. And then saying, okay, I get you. I feel what you felt. Now what? Mm. what do we do from that information. Because if we stay there in that spot of, you're just going to be a victim forever. Right. Right. When you started this, you were talking about your relationship with your roommate and the conversations that you were having help become part of the conversations of a peace treaty, right? Or at least a, a, a conversation about creating, right? And when we sit at equals, as equals at, at, at a table where we see value and hear each other, that's a start. And knowing that we're not gonna agree on everything. But in our disagreement, is not a reason to build a wall. 
and our disagreement, can we continue building a bridge? And, you know, some bridges take longer than others to build, but they all start with the intention that I hear you, I see you, I value you, and I value in building a bridge to unite us as opposed to divide us. So I think if, if that's our intention and everything needs to start with that intention, then we can only end up in a better place, not in, 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 in the best place or in a perfect place, but in a better place than where we have been. You, you know, it's funny. Um, I was 18 maybe in, uh, in Oregon, in Salem, Oregon. Mm. And I was wearing a, uh, a jacket that, no, this was actually, I, I had the jacket, my brother, this was my brother. <laughs> so my brother is wearing a jacket that has a pentacle on it. It's a, you know, that, that pagan star, the five are mm. inside of a circle. And then it had some Celtic ruin, ruins, uh, the writing on it. it said pagan pride in in gaelic and he's wearing doc martens it was kind of funny he, you know we were, we were we were crazy uh you know kinds of people growing up we like to study religions and do things like sword fighting in the middle of the forest for weeks on it you know time and listen to jr tolkien and read you know read jr tolkien so we were interesting people and <clears throat> very creatives and my brother was approached in a mall by a skinhead and the skinhead saw the doc martens and he saw the jacket and he thought oh this is one of my people and so he started having a conversation with my brother my brother obviously didn't tell him he was jewish and he just sat there for almost two hours listening to the vitriol that this person was spewing, not agreeing, not disagreeing, not, not reacting at all. And, you know, some of the things, I think one of the things he said is like, Jews have an aversion to water. So they smell, <laughs> they smell, you know, you could wow. smell a Jew a mile away because they have an aversion to water or something like that. It was one of the, the things, but he kept, you know, he would say all these things not knowing that he's talking to the person he's talking about, <laughs> right? And I find it fascinating how much people think certain things about certain cultures where they've never actually experienced knowing that person or that culture, right? So I've been to Jordan and Lebanon and Israel and I, I kind of went into Palestine for like about 20 minutes. Not enough to, to know a culture, right? I've traveled to, to France for a week. Not enough to know the culture. But I, I, I could spew beliefs about the French culture. I could spew beliefs about the Muslim culture. I could spew beliefs about those people. And none of them are accurate 100%. Mostly, not even 
Mm. Right. Because what the belief is, has been fed to us by, as you said, by the media, by comedians, by (laughs) entertainment, the world, you know, I listened to somebody say the Jew, the, 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 the Jewish held media, you know, all the news, it's all the Jewish control in the deep state. Like, really? I'm Jewish. I've never heard of this deep state or the Jewish control of, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't make sense to me because it doesn't fit with my reality. And I'm wondering how much benefit the audience would get by going up to somebody that they previously have a, have a preconceived notion about and just starting a conversation with them and asking them questions and not reacting and not responding, just asking questions. Mm. And I believe there was this black gentleman who did this with the KKK. And I think that, that yeah. there's something like um, 80 or 90 KKK members that after years of this black gentleman being around and them saying, hey, maybe, well, you know, Black people are this, but this guy's okay. You've, I'm sure, heard that. I've heard the documentary, yes. Muslims are, are blah, 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 but you're okay. You're, you're all right. How did you get to be okay instead? Well, wait a minute. The majority is <laughs> hmm. like you, like me, like that black man who went to, to ask the question of, of this grand poobah in the, in the KKK, right? How much ignorance allows people to continue being judgmental? And I'm gonna put it one step further. How much religion allows people to be judgmental even when they say, only God is there to judge. You, it's, it's a sin for you to be a judge and jury. That's God's job. But yet, the religious people in general that I've met, doesn't matter what religion, are the ones that tend to judge the most. Holier than thou. I, I unpacked a few things there. Why don't you speak to that? That's a, that's a, it was a lot of <laughs> comments, but... Again, I think it comes back to what you said earlier about bias. If we're not ready to recognize our own bias, right, we're not going to understand how we can lead to see things differently. And that different doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't, you know, our goal, our end goal isn't to agree. Our end goal is to honor that you and I have the right to exist and to hold different convictions, whatever they are, political, religious, but can we still sit at the same table and break bread and recognize that you have every right to be seen, heard, and valued as I do? And it's not because of your color or your privilege or what you lack or have more of than I do. It's that we all come as equal partners and contributors to this circle. And we're all, we all have the right to feel that we belong and we feel safe. And when we feel that we belong and we feel safe, then we, try, we start to trust each other. 
And when we trust each other, we build a foundation. And that's how you build the, found, the, the bridge on, is that foundation of trust. We can't get there, whether we're talking about nations or nationhood, whether we're talking about different political parties, whether we're talking about in a relationship, two people who live with each other. You know, if, if you are not prepared to sit at the table and listen to the other person and to lean in with curiosity that you're going to learn something, you know, I have something that I call the four D's and the four L's of emotional intelligence, right? And, but the four L's start with listening. So when we listen to others, what happens when you, when you, when you listen to someone? I learn. You learn. That's a second L. When you learn about somebody, inevitably, you start to exercise a level of compassion, empathy, and that means love. And when you do that, when you start to love someone, you listen, you learn, you start to love and appreciate them, you allow them to be. You allow them to lead from the heart. So the four L's, you know, how we get to know others, and you know, emotional intelligence is a lot deeper than that. But I, you know, the, the, the reason I brought the four D's and the four L's into it, and particularly the four L's are about awareness of others. Why did I pick the four D's and the four L's? They just came to my mind and I was able to put the, the, the formula together just to work it. But I, I wanted to give people an idea of how can I simplify getting to know myself through a process of diagnosis, determining that I have the right diagnosis, developing a plan with the right milestones and the approach and then I get things done. I do it. That's the four Ds of self-awareness. And the four Ds, the four Ls of becoming more aware of others is to start from a place where I'm willing to listen. When I listen, I inevitably learn. When I learn, I end up loving. And when I love, I end up leading from the heart and allow others to lead. When we can bring that level of awareness to ourselves and to others, we inevitably create communities where we feel safe, where we trust each other, and where we belong. The idea is not, the, the minute we think we have to agree on everything, it's like looking at the diversity that's all around us and saying, you don't exist. And diversity exists whether or not you and I acknowledge it. People are black, people are, are yellow, people are, 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 are white, people are what, Caucasian, whatever you want to refer to our physical outwardly, right? And pink. And, and pink. Right. And, and people, you know, love differently, you know, people who are not ready to embrace that we have different ways to love and there's no better way than another people that aren't ready to recognize that we have different ways of, of attaining piety or or believing in a greater force. We are not here to convince each other of who's wrong or who's right. We are here to value the honor that we bring to the existence of the other. And, and you know, that is where we can start. We can start by, and you know, we, when we talk about honor and, and acknowledgement, you know, this is why in, in most here, at least in Canada, before we start a, a ceremony, we acknowledge the land on which we are because we recognize that this land does not belong to you or I. You know, this land is a land that has been taken from the indigenous communities who have lived here for thousands of years. And you and I are, are, are visitors on this land. We, we are all immigrants of some sort, right? Whether we're Jewish, Muslim, white, black, we are all here and we have started to live on the land that were owned by the indigenous communities who have been here for thousands of years. So acknowledging that is a starting point for me to mend and, and to say to the indigenous communities, I am ready to acknowledge you. I cannot fix the past. I cannot undo the past. 
I can only talk to you about what's the right thing that you and I can do now and what is the right approach for the future. How do I build a bridge for you? And that is the whole idea when, when, when we talk about um, making things right, you know, so it's acknowledging that we can't change the past, but we can certainly learn from it and move forward. I like that because there's no way to do anything about the past. It's past. Exactly. It has passed. It is. <clears throat> with regards to communities, that's awesome. With regards to companies, employers, can you see how this might benefit you having conversations with your employees? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you, if you let people weigh in, they will buy in. When you tell people who's sitting around a table where we're talking about projects and you're not just talking about resources and the budget and, and the number of people that you will dedicate to that project, but you talk about, hey, Ari, what concerns do you have about this project? Hey, Mohammed, what contributions do you have to this project? When you treat everyone as an equal contributor, you listen to their concerns. When you let them weigh in, they will buy in. When people buy in and their heart is invested in what you're doing, they believe in your vision and your mission, they will work for you. You harness a free workforce because those people become your ambassadors. They start talking about the importance of your organization. When you lead by fear, they talk behind your back. When you lead from the heart and with love, they will acknowledge you in your presence. They will sing your praises. They will talk about why they feel they belong with you. And that, that, is what's needed today in terms of leadership in an organization. We don't need the old top-down approach. We need the role modeling, not the role playing. Right. That's been that's been probably one of the the longest running debates in in history is lead by fear or lead by love. Right? The kings. Are you a, a king that wants to be loved or mm -hmm. a king that wants to be feared? You know, that that was always and then men who wants your your you know people to be afraid of you or you want them to love you right that parenting same way right do we want to parent with fear right when i was a little kid believe it or not and i know you're of the jewish faith you know we were told to be we were told to be careful god would strangle us if we did something wrong and we had this image of god and this isn't our religion this is our culture by the way right you know we had this image of this omnipotent being that knew everything. It's like this magnificent Santa Claus. And if we were bad, he was gonna take his, his sleigh and wrap the rope around our neck and strangle us. And when we grew up, we're like saying to our parents, what do you mean God's gonna strangle us? Well, I don't know, that's what our parents told us. So our parents and their parents and their parents' parents will tell us the lies and the misconceptions and misbeliefs that they've learned. And that's why nations can't get along because we have stopped listening to the nature of, our, of how we can nurture each other and honor each other and create a new narrative. We've always you know, followed the old narrative. So we, we, you know, whether it's parenting, whether it's in an organization, we need to say, how can we do things differently? Just because we've done it this way for the past doesn't mean it's the right way. Yeah, you know what's funny? I'm, a, I'm just gonna make it a little lively, but <laughs> I stopped a long time ago, I stopped taking the green part off of the strawberry. And I stopped taking the green part off of the carrot and I stopped taking the seeds and out of the apple. <laughs> and, and it was like, at first it was like, 
well, what are you doing? I said, well, I always wondered why people did this. And I asked my mom and she said, because my mom did. And so then I asked my grandmother, why, why do you cut the ends off the, the carrots and the, take the green off? I mean, that's green stuff. It's good for you, right? It's green, greens are good. Why are you taking the green off the strawberry? Because my mom did. And it was like, okay, well, let's see here. I think I'm going to, I was a rebel growing up, I, you know, probably a rebel now a little bit, but <laughs> a lot less, but I stopped doing that because I didn't want to do something that was done just because somebody else did it. It didn't make sense to me why I don't like throwing away food. So why would I throw away this piece of the food? <laughs> and people look at me when I eat strawberries now and they're like, what are you doing? I'm, like, I'm, eat, I'm eating the strawberry. Like, yeah, but you, you, you still got the green on there. And it's almost unfathomable to people mm. that I'm eating that strawberry with all of its nutrients in all of its form versus, you know, or the carrot versus taking it apart. So I just wanted to make it a little lively, but that's a way of, of illustrating what you were just saying, right? And, you know, your point and our parents and our parents' parents, that comes back to what I was trying to, to use earlier and maybe with a bit of humor, it can reinforce the point where that if we look at the opportunities that some communities have and others don't have, right? It's only when we dare to do things differently. I want to eat the banana with, 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 the, with the peel on. I want to eat the apple with the peel. My mom always peels uh, apples and pears. I say, no, mom, the, the skin will really help us digest and so forth, right? So, you know, I, but I recognize she doesn't like to eat it with the peel. She says, I have to spit the peel back out because I can't chew it. So it's okay. I, I recognize that what might taste good for me or work for me may not work for her. And that comes back to what we've been saying all along is that so long as we recognize that, you know, what, what, what's the old adage that we agree to disagree, yeah. right? But we agree to disagree and recognize that we are both equal in, in that approach and one is not better than the other. And, you know, we don't even have to like each other. I say to people that I work with, look, you and I don't have to go out and have a coffee, but at least we have to be respectful to each other. We don't have to become best friends but we have to respect each other. Right. And again, in a workplace environment, you're not asking people to become best friends. You're not asking people to go out and golf together or go to have a drink together. You're asking them to recognize the contributions that they bring, the concerns that they have, and that they bring value. And that inevitably helps people feel like they belong. You, you, know, you harness a, a workshop that's more engaged, more empowered, and that's how you allow people to lead by heart, by leading by example. Right. Well, I mean, just, just, just thinking about people as human beings, right? Inherently, a human has value. They have skill, mm -hmm. mind, they have, you know, doesn't matter what the, what the value is that they bring, they bring a value. And so appreciating that this person in front of me is a human. And, and I ask people, when did you start being so afraid? So people usually will say, my parents taught me or, or I had this experience from this one person, right? Somebody beat me up that was of this other race. And so therefore all people I should be afraid of in this race. 
but I ask them where, where did that start? Because, you know, we all seen pictures of babies and, you know, kids, toddlers, black, white, Muslim, didn't matter. They just like, Oh, a human being that's, that's my size. I'm going to go play with that person. Right. They had to be taught the prejudices. And if you have to be taught prejudice, then you can be untaught prejudice. Right. The way I know of to unteach something or to teach something new is to give them an education of who and what I am. Amazing. Because when you think about children, again, children embrace each other. They, you know, that's maybe where I agree with you in that. Well, I agree on a lot of things, but, you know, earlier when we were talking about uh, recognizing whether we have, you know, we're colored or not and so forth, right? Children don't necessarily see that difference and they're not as aware of it. You know, Sally's aware that Bob took her, her, her sandwich and, and Joe's aware that Sally's wearing a pink dress, but they're not necessarily aware of the other inherent differences that you and I will pick up on as, as adults. They'll, they're very smart and they'll pick up on other things as well that maybe you and I don't pick up on. But what they don't know inherently is to hate. They're taught that. They're taught it by the behaviors that they pick up on, that they see, and the modeling that they see from others, and what becomes okay. So, you know, we mentioned off, off camera, we mentioned uh, about bullying, right? Most bullies were bullied themselves, doesn't justify why they do what they do, but we learn that behavior from others. So, yes, I completely agree with you that what we learn in that we learn to hate, we can learn to love, we can learn to unhate we can learn to become more aware of the other and, and to embrace them as opposed to push them away. Yeah, you know, the, the, we did have a conversation about the bullying and I, I have this saying that a bully's best friend is the silence of others. And right. that's where I, I keep wow. saying, we need to get loud. Mm. People, the majority, what we call, and we call it this, like it's like it's somehow a good thing, the silent majority. Why wow. such a good thing? Yeah. You're the majority. Be loud about the good because the facts of the matter are, is what we see in the news, what we see in the media, what we read about, hear about, look about what's in our faces has nothing to do with the majority of reality. Because the majority of reality is that you could go down the street and have a conversation with anybody. And most people are pretty kind, pretty nice, pretty gentle with others. It's what I consider to be the government's agenda. And this is the government in any place, whether it's Israel, Palestine, government agenda versus citizenry. Because when I was in Israel, the citizens got along. Palestinian living next door to Jew doing amazing things and they all got along. So that was my explanation of the news is completely not talking about the truth. And so people need to stop watching the news, <laughs> stop listening to the agenda and start building 
those bridges in their own minds. They need to listen to this podcast. Absolutely. Right? They, no, they, they, they need to see where people like you and your Palestinian roommate, people like you and me, I, I had another Jewish friend here in the town where I live, and he and I were going to have a podcast together. He's Jewish, very, you know, practicing Jew. I'm a practicing Muslim. And we were going to call it the Jew and the Muslim podcast. And, you know, we wanted to set that precedence where we said, look, we recognize our history. We recognize our, our, our brotherhood and we honor that. And we recognize our differences and we're okay to talk about those. And we're going to feel uncomfortable, but you know what? We're not going to hate or kill each other because of that. Actually, when we talk about it, and recognize the importance that you and I bring to that discussion, that's where we start to see the value and, 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 and the, the reason that I need to listen to you. Because before I can listen to you, I'm not going to be in a position where I can learn something new. Right. Well, I, so I appreciate that you've given me this opportunity to learn to learn about you and, and to share with others, you know, because we can learn. We can learn continuously. It's not a process of getting there. It's a process of working together to a better place together. Well, maybe, maybe sometime, you know, I'll come on your show or something and, and I would love that. Tell me about about the religion and the culture, because from what I've studied, I'm not so fond of some of the cultural things, obviously, like I don't like women not being able to drive and all all that kind of stuff. Right. And that's a cultural thing, not necessarily. That's a geographical cultural thing, if I may. Right. So, and you know what? I can't agree with you more because anything that doesn't recognize our equality is something that doesn't talk to our humanity. Right. But I, I would love you to talk a little bit, and, and we can't do it tonight, today, but I would love you to talk a little bit about the beauty of the Muslim religion because it is such a beautiful, rich, diverse culture, diverse religion. And it's nothing like what most people think in the Western, at least. So anyway. It's, cha- it's changing. I, I think a lot of people are starting to see differently because you and I are having these discussions because we are amplifying the, the, the silenced voices that for the longest time have not had the opportunity to be heard. And that is why I think it's so important to, to look at the alternatives to, to the media and, and the outlets out there because having you know podcasts, having... Uh, opportunities where people can talk like this freely and share the different perspectives, that's where we're going to break with the silent majority and create a new minority of loud voices that speak a better truth. Absolutely. So let's give uh, three tips or tricks that anybody listening can take with them and act upon today so they could create their new tomorrow today. This isn't mine. This is probably Gandhi's or Michael Jackson but be the change that you want to see in the world. I, you know, don't reinvent, just be the change that you want to see in the world. Start with yourself. And in order to start with yourself, get to know yourself. You can't get to know others if you don't know yourself. And when you get to that place of constant knowing of you and the other, allow for those differences and recognize that we're stronger because of our differences, not in spite of them. Awesome. Thank you. How can people get a hold of you if they'd like to? So listen to this podcast, listen to the Unfiltered podcast. Uh, I can share with you, um, you know, I have a training uh, consulting business, uh, Desire, the number two lead, Desire to Lead. Uh, I saw I do keynote speaking, training. Um, people can get in touch with me through LinkedIn. 
probably the best place. So Mohammed Hamoud at LinkedIn, Developing Unfaltered Leaders, there to serve, there to engage in conversations and get to know the other. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ari. Truly enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And Blessings. Another episode of Create a New Tomorrow. I'm your host, Ari Gronich. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to like, subscribe, rate, review, and comment so that we can start conversations like this with you and hopefully create a new tomorrow today. Thank you and next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate all you do to create a new tomorrow for yourself and those around you. If you'd like to take this information further and are interested in joining a community of like-minded people who are all passionate about activating their vision for a better world, go to the website, createanewtomorrow.com and find out how you can be part of making a bigger difference. I have a gift for you just for checking it out and look forward to seeing you take the leap and joining our private paid mastermind community. Until then, see you on the next episode.